0: This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here, host of Now with Dave Brown on AMI Audio. We want to keep you in the now with information on news, sports, politics, technology, all curated and presented by members of the blind and partially sighted community. And that community includes me. But we don't want to do all the talking. We want to hear from you. Do you have an opinion on something you saw in the news? Is something affecting your community? Now is your chance to be heard. Listen to Now with Dave Brown wherever you subscribe to podcasts. I'm Juita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. As Canada's emergency response benefit comes to an end, politicians and activists are urgently discussing the need for a basic income program. Canada is facing a deep recession due to COVID-19, many Canadians are struggling to stay financially afloat. Historically, discussions about basic income programs have been polarizing. Critics of basic income have been quick to raise the alarm about the cost of such a program to the public purse. Nevertheless, it's clear that basic income is a bold idea, which, if implemented properly, has the capacity to be transformative. And as Canadians look to life after COVID-19, it's entirely possible that basic income programs might finally have their day. Today, we discuss basic income. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Juita Gupta, and I'm the host of the program. I hope that you and yours are staying safe and keeping well during the pandemic. I just want to remind you that if you want to keep up with the latest AMI-audio coverage related to COVID-19, you can visit AMI.ca forward slash COVID-19. We collect our most relevant segments from all of our daily live shows, now with Dave Brown, Kelly and & Company, and of course, our coverage here on The Pulse conveniently for you in one place. So today we're talking about basic income. What is it? Who would benefit? Who may not benefit? What's the history of basic income programs in Canada? And my guest is the founder and coordinator of Coalition Canada, uh, who has been really instrumental in pushing this idea forward. Tony Pickard joins me now. Hello and welcome to The Pulse. It's really wonderful to have you with us.
1: Hello, Joita. It's a real pleasure to be speaking with you about basic income.
0: So basic income goes by a number of different names, universal guaranteed income. But I think a lot of people actually don't quite understand what it is. I mean, it's been in the news a lot because of uh, COVID-19 and CERB. But what exactly is a basic income program?
1: Well, the, it, it, there are many different models, so it's not entirely simple to respond to that. But I can tell you very simply what the basic income movement in Canada is advocating for. And that is for an adequate income above, at or above the poverty level for those who need income support. There's another model that would give give, uh, the income to everybody and try to tax it back from those who don't need it. That's not what we are advocating for. We advocate Mm -hmm. for an unconditional, that is no work or seeking work requirements, basic income for those who need income support with only um, perhaps a residency condition.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And, of course, there are forms of income support available right now. So EI, employment insurance is one, uh, disability programs, welfare programs, social assistance programs. Uh, People might be wondering, why is that not enough? Why do we even need to consider scrapping the existing model and thinking about something new?
1: Well, that's a good question. And the answer is partly obvious from the scrambling the government had to go through to offer income support to people who needed it in the form of the CERB. Mm-hmm. Um, an, another reason, quite apart from the pandemic, is that the social assistance rates uh, across the provinces are grossly inadequate, and mm-hmm. so especially for single people of working age. And so people are, and, and it's another reason is even where the uh, social assistance rates are not, are only badly inadequate rather than grossly, the, in order to be eligible, people have to impoverish themselves, give up everything they have in the way of an asset, and submit to, in Ontario, 800 different Rules and many mm. different programs that are confusing. It's stigmatizing and humiliating and inadequate. And people who are receiving social assistance really live in some measure of despair and horrible stress all the time.
0: Mm-hmm. That's the impact on of poverty on individuals. But I think it's it's helpful to also. Uh, think about the impacts or the cost of poverty to society. It's not an argument that gets a lot of traction, but isn't it true that the more people are impoverished, the more it drains on uh, the public purse, for want of a better term? Absolutely,
1: it both both drains the public purse in the form of um, health costs, criminal justice costs, foster care costs for children, remedial educational costs, and more. But it, it it also, because it leaves so many people unable to be productive, unable to join the workforce, it reduces the public purse in the sense of lack of tax revenues. Mm-hmm
0: one of the things that, so these are all sort of really compelling arguments for why the status quo needs to be changed. And what you're advocating for, your group is advocating for, is uh, some level of income to everyone, regardless of circumstances at or above the poverty line. I'm going to sort of challenge you a little bit, because I'm sure you've heard the criticism before that any sort of basic income program is just straight up unaffordable. How are we supposed to pay for this? How do you respond to that kind of criticism? Well, my first response,
1: Joita, is it's absolutely affordable, and we know that, and it's been demonstrated. So the critics um, haven't, either they haven't done their homework, or and they don't know what kind of basic income we're advocating for, which is not the hugely expensive kind where you have to give the money to everybody and try to get it back from the those who don't need it. It's We're advocating for a basic income for those who need it only, which is much less expensive. So the people who say it's unaffordable don't know what we're – they're not talking about what we're advocating for. And they haven't read the two major studies, one from the Parliamentary Budget Office and one from Basic Income Canada Network, both of which do the calculations and show it to be completely affordable. To my point of view, it's an ideological stance against basic income and a bit of scaremongering by making use of a figure that has nothing to do with what's being advocated for now in Canada.
0: Mm. But just to follow up on that, even so, even Mm -hmm. in terms of what you're advocating for, which is a basic income program that would be um, a, a minimum required to cover the cost of living given to everybody, um, would you nevertheless see some need to reform our tax system? It could be income tax, it could be carbon tax. Is there a way in which we make uh, some changes to our taxation system?
1: Um, two responses. First, just to say we are not, once again, we're not wanting to, the government to supply this money so to everyone, just to mm-hmm. those who need it to, to be topped up to an acceptable level. Of income. Mm-hmm. Um, would we have to make some changes to the tax system? The modeling that was done by the Parliamentary Budget Office and Basic Income Canada Network work with the data from the taxation system because that data is available for modeling. Neither one proposes additional taxes, carbon mm-hmm. taxes, or wealth taxes, inheritance taxes none of those so and of course those possibilities for funding are there mm-hmm. but um this the modeling that's been done has been done on the personal and the corporate income tax systems and yes there would have to be some changes to the system so that those so that those who are well off pay more and in order to support those the, the funding for those who are living below a poverty level.
0: Isn't it true that in Canada we do have some experience with some history of basic income programs like Mincom, for example, is something that comes to mind. And more yes. recently there was a, a couple of towns in Ontario where they tried it out. Give us a bit of a run through of the history of basic income programs in Canada.
1: Well The history, it depends what you mean. If you mean efforts that were actually put into operation as opposed to those being sought by, for example, the province of PEI, there have been two in Canada. One was the MINCOM experiment, which you mentioned, which took place in the 1970s, and the other was the Ontario pilot, which um, took place in three different locations in Ontario, which went for a year starting in 2018, not really getting started till, or I'm very bad at this, maybe it was 2019 when it really got started. Unfortunately, the government changed in Ontario, and the current government canceled it after only one year, and so the... Um, serious evaluation system that was set up was undone, and we never got that evaluation, although we did do the best we could through interviewing people who who had mm-hmm. benefited for that one year. The, the results of those interviews can be found in another report from the Basic Income Canada Network, which is called the Signposts, and I forget what comes after the colon. The signpost report.
0: Um, I know that Mincom was uh, mentioned implemented in the 70s. And the, if I'm not much mistaken, I think they're only now starting to look at some of the impacts of, uh, of life in, in Manitoba where they, they implemented the program. What were some of their findings? What impact did Mincom have on, on people?
1: Well, MinCom um, began to be evaluated, I don't know precisely when, but at least, mm, this is 2020, at least five years ago, probably a little bit more than that. Uh, Evelyn Forge, who's from Manitoba and who is uh, a health economist, dug out all the data which had never been evaluate, evaluated and has written now two books and her original article about it, um, showing that there was in the four at the most years that it ran, there was an 8.5% reduction in health care costs. There was a reduction in accidents. There was a reduction in um, mental health visits. So there was a massive impact on health, which she has documented. There was very little to no impact on the work participation of primary um, wage earners for the families involved. There was some reduction in work participation by male high school students who, instead of going out to work, Stayed in school and got a high school degree at a time when that really mattered for your prospects. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was some reduction um, by women who are mothers of infants, reduction in their participation in the workforce to stay home with the infants for a longer period of time than mat leave, if there was even maternity leave in Dauphin at that time, I'm not sure. So they mm-hmm. they stayed out of the workforce in order to care for their young, young children.
0: My name is Joyita Gupta and with me today is Tony Pickard from Coalition Canada. We're talking about basic income programs, their history, their origins, And, of course, some of the criticisms. We're doing some myth-busting here on the program. And what I'd like to do now, Tony, is really fast forward to 2020. It is a newsy item in that a lot of people are now talking about basic income because of CERB, which, of course, isn't basic income, but comes pretty close to it. Uh, Do you feel that basic income is about to have its moment in the sun? This is a turning point in our conversation? Well, it's a turning point for sure. Whether it's the moment in the
1: sun, one can't, I, I, I don't know, Joita, but for sure people now, many, many, many more people understand the stress and the horrors, really, of financial insecurity, the inability to work in a way that puts enough food on the table and pays the rent. So there's much greater... Awareness both of basic income in the country now and understanding of why it's needed and sympathy for those in a situation in life where pandemic-like financial, the financial impact of the pandemic is the common fare of their daily lives. So, yes, I think it makes a very big difference um, Will it be the moment in the sun? I don't know. You know, it's, it's a very transformative change, as you said yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's not easy for people to accept such a major change. So we'll have to see what comes in the throne speech. And our expectation is to have to keep working. But we keep working starting at a much higher level of awareness, among the voting public, and grassroots support is essential in this because there are powerful opponents.
0: One of the things that I was mentioning to Sam, uh, our technical producer today, is, uh, you know, when you think about CERB, granted it's not a basic income program, but it's very noticeable that the government was able to implement it uh, without too many hiccups. I mean, they were they were on top of it. Um, they rolled it out within weeks of declaring the pandemic, and of course, um, also managed to modify the program. You know, they said, "Well, students aren't being covered, so let's m- tweak the program so that students have their own version of SERB." Do you think there's been a, a degree of learning that the 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 people, the detractors who have said, you know some kind of a basic income program just isn't feasible. Do you think that it takes away from their argument when we've clearly demonstrated that the government has the wherewithal to pull something nearly like basic income off?
1: Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. It's because people have learned that. People in the country have learned the government can move fast with lots of money to help people, if it understands the need, so so voters are beginning to understand that, and that undermines the argument that those who would argue that this is simply not feasible and is unaffordable, basic income would be cheaper than CERB, for sure if it were in had it had it been in place, and secondly, and perhaps more importantly, government actors themselves have seen that the income support systems currently in place, EI, for example, are not adequate. They don't mm-hmm. do the job of providing income support for people who need it. And so, and something like only 40% of workers actually eligible for EI, I'm not sure the percentage, but it's around that area. So there's been a lot of learning through SERV and mm-hmm. that's one reason Um, As we go back to work after the throne speech, assuming for the moment that there's nothing really important said about basic income in the throne speech, our work is in a different terrain of awareness and understanding both with ordinary people and with government actors.
0: I just want to sort of follow up a little bit on what you said a few minutes ago about social, uh, social assistance systems not really doing their job one population is quite dependent on social assistance uh, would be people with disabilities and we know that those rates of of social assistance haven't climbed in a very long time. How would people with disabilities who have some specialized needs who likely have a higher cost of living than average fare under your model of basic income?
1: Well there are two ways. Um, First of all, the basic rate will be higher than it is on social assistance. Like the basic rate for anybody who gets a basic income will be much higher than what's available to people on um, um, ODSP in Ontario or any disability program that I know about um, in the provinces. The second thing is it is a built-in part of what we advocate for that people who are living on low incomes with disabilities have to have a supplemental amount. And the amount that's usually been talked about um, in today's terms is $6,000 a year additional to the basic income amount. And we also advocate for retention of the special programs, available to people uh, receiving social assistance, people with disabilities receiving social assistance in the provinces where there are such programs, that provide for particularly um, expensive aids, service dogs, wheelchairs. um, um, I had a list that I've now lost but um, prostheses and other kinds of aids that people with severe disabilities need to live a normal life, that those programs be retained in the provinces but made available to people at certain income levels rather than people receiving uh, social assistance. So that's our position.
0: Yeah, I read an article a, a, a while back that talked about the false hope of, of 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 basic income and the pandemic, that people were now sort of touting this as a silver bullet or a great solution. But the opinion in that article was that it's really just helping to prop up the neoliberal capitalist system that really, you know, we're not tackling the root of, root of the problem, which is austerity and cutbacks. How would you sort of respond to that criticism of, of basic income programs? Well, um, I see that as
1: two separate criticisms, both coming from the left as opposed to the right side of the political spectrum. First, I would say that there is no doubt that basic income is a market propping up system. It is. It is um, a transformation that would make sure people could participate in a market economy mm-hmm. in a reasonable way. But it has mm-hmm. so many liberatory or transformative aspects in terms of freedom and ability to participate in the democratic process and in one's own community that the eventual political impact is hard to assess in advance. Insofar as the criticism suggests that the current neoliberal austerity thinking is propped up by basic income, I I can't agree with that. Um, basic income depends on the lead on the decision makers moving away from austerity thinking, and that's particularly mm-hmm. relevant now when there is a debt being built up. Austerity thinkers um, and small government thinkers are c- crying out for immediate treatment of that debt, whereas major debts like this, as, for example, from wars, are normally paid off over very long periods of time shared by generations, and this particular debt was um, incurred at very low interest rates. Mm -hmm. So the austerity thinking, which would say we can't afford this now because we have to pay off the debt, again, in my view, comes from an ideological perspective, which is against basic income and the empowerment and freedom and decency it offers to the lives of people living on low incomes.
0: We've got a few minutes left, and so I'm going to invite you to give us the elevator pitch in 30 seconds. Why basic income?
1: Basic income because it will restore our aspiration to a just, humane, and decent society in Canada.
0: That's wonderful. Thank you so much for being on the program. It was a really big topic. You spent a lot of time unpacking it for us, doing some myth busting. We really appreciate that you could speak to us today.
1: Thank you for inviting me, Joita, and for your focus on a very important issue.
0: That was Tony Pickard from Coalition Canada. We spoke today about basic income. What is it? What's its history in Canada? What are some of the myths and some of the common misperceptions and why it's so relevant in the here and now? If you missed some of my conversation with Tony, Tony, or you'd like to go back and have a listen, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platforms. I just want to say that I think basic income is a really bold idea, and it certainly deserves further consideration. I'll have more to say on our show blog, ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'd like to thank Tony Pickard for being my guest on the program today. Sam Robinson is our technical producer in for of Abdullah abdul Andy Frank is the manager of AMI Audio. Paula Denine is our technical supervisor. My thanks as always for listening. I hope you Stay safe and keep well during the pandemic. We'll be back here on The Pulse on AMI Audio. Have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. I'm Margaret Shepherd of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air.